Hello and welcome to another APW Property Podcast episode. Uh, but you knew that already because it's Monday and you tuned in specially to find out what our topic was today. Well, today we're going to be carrying on with our In Property Investment Strategies series and we're going to be looking at BRRRR. That's build... No. <laughs> I'll, I'll step in. <laughs> it's buy, refurbish, refinance, rent out and you can add another R, which is repeat. You could build, uh, but then you wouldn't refurbish, I suppose. Um, anyway, <laughs> so with me today is uh, Callum Williamson. Hi, Callum. Hi, Paul. How are you? I'm very well. Um, so just explain a little bit about APW. Sure, yeah. So APW, we uh, help expatriates and international people purchase property, usually investment property in the UK. You know, between myself and my colleagues, we've been doing it over 30 years. And, you know, the way we do it is by sort of having a chat with people, figuring out what their goals are, helping them realise what their goals are, and then sort of building a strategy around that. We then sort of go and find stuff for them that fits the bill and, and um, sort of help with the whole process. But it starts with education, uh, things like this podcast and our YouTube and our articles and our, um, our upcoming book. Okay. We, as I say, we've been looking at investment strategies. Uh, we concluded uh, in our first article about in investment that there were three broad categories. One was buy and hold, uh, the other was buy for income, and the third was buy and fix. Uh, now, we've covered uh, buy and hold and buy for income in earlier podcast episodes, so do get on to Spotify and have a look at those or have a listen to those if you haven't heard them already. Today we're going to be doing the buy and fix, which as you say is B-R-R-R-R. Uh, sometimes there's an extra R on there, but it stands for buy, refurbish, refinance and rent. And the extra R is sometimes and repeat. Uh, so if you've conducted your own personal audit of all your unique circumstances and uh, you've done, you've defined your goals basically, but as part of that process, you're going to be looking at how much time, energy, skill, knowledge that you have to bring to the process. Uh, you could be a bit of a dab hand with a paintbrush or you could have unused skills in bricklaying and carpentry. Um, so you might want to, you know, take a little bit of a sabbatical or while you're on holiday, do a bit of a refresh of a property that would be come under the buy and fix. But uh, maybe you have skills in architecture or the law and you're good at visualising the potential of a property. Uh, the point is you've got to spot a property which is undervalued in some way because of a problem and you're the person who can think of a way to fix it. Is that a, a part of the strategy, Callum? Yeah, sure, that's it. So, I mean, you... Um... And, and, you know, what you're saying earlier is, is, is spot on. You know, you've got to sort of take stock of um, your resources and your situation and, and sort of, um, you know, uh, lay that over your plan in order to sort of come up with what is the best strategy. You know, so if some people it's buy and hold, some it's buy for income, and then others it's the, the buy and fix or the BRR or the finding a doer-upper, as, um, as some people call it. So, yeah, I mean, that's essentially it. You know, you're buying somewhere that you feel like you can add a bit of value to or that you know you don't necessarily need to change it structurally but that's quite popular is is sort of adding bedrooms and turning it into a hmo for example but yeah it can be as simple as sort of you know bringing it from a very old feeling drab house to a new house or you know adding an extension or changing it structurally but basically you're adding value to it and then you're you know you are either selling it in order to to pull the capital out and do it again and go bigger and better or you're 
uh, you're sort of keeping it and adding it to your portfolio for a sort of buy and hold or a, or a longer term income play. Yes, I come back to the the very first flat I bought. Now, I back in the day, I didn't do any of these as an investor. These were all places that I was actually living in, and I I refurbished around me. Uh, but the very first flat I bought had just been done by developers, so everything was there. The problem was that they had decorated it absolutely hideously. I mean, it was just quite staggering how bad their choices were. There was big brown swirly carpet and embossed wallpaper and an avocado bath suite. Just absolutely nothing was attractive in any way. And they hadn't done the garden. It was just a pile of rubble from the leftover from the building works that they'd done on this big Victorian property. And it, but it was the space that I liked, and I, I tucked in and and bought it, and uh, yeah, and then just spent a long time decorating it around me. And I didn't really know very much, or I, I learnt how little I knew as I was doing it. So uh, I learnt on the job, as it were. And uh, but that was the start of it. And ever since, I've I've been refurbishing all sorts of properties. So, but the very Let's start at the basics. That is, you know, doing what I did with that first flat, which is redecorating. Uh, it's something that some people have skills in. It's it's relatively simple, but you're not going to really add that much value to a property by doing that, are you, Callum? No, that's it. I mean, you can uh, you, you can sort of modernise it and bring it into the modern world, and you know, yeah, you're not going to add heaps and heaps of value. It's not sort of uh, the the silver bullet that a lot of people are looking for. You know, it's just a sort of a simple and easy way, you know, to give you an example, I looked at a property last week and it was the, a terraced house in a city and, you know, the lady had been living in it her whole life. Unfortunately, she died, not in the house, but, you know, the decor in the house was still from, you know, the 70s. So £10,000, you could turn that into a modern house and you'd add a fair bit of value because it was so sort of old and not unloved, but just dated. But um yeah, so it starts as, with as simple as that, a lick of paint, and then all the way through to sort of more complex projects where you're turning uh, you know, Victorian terraces into flats or if you're turning them into HMOs. And I think, you know, unless you've been in property a long, long time and you've got experience doing all of these, I think on those more complex projects, the key is to work with, work with experts and people that do it for a living, you know, um, so, so yeah, you can start at one end and as with anything, sorry, there's a sliding scale, right? And it goes to easy to sort of more complicated. But what's your flat? What, what would that flat be worth in, in London now? I mean, that must be worth an absolute fortune, I would imagine. I don't know. I haven't checked, but it was uh, it was something that I bought a long time ago, given how old I am. But the next property <laughs> we did was a uh, was like you say, it was a terrace that was actually in a very shabby state. But we swapped the kitchen and the bathroom for some reason. They had the kitchen on the top floor, so it was one of those four story Georgian terraces. Uh, we moved the kitchen to the basement and put the bathroom on the top floor, and then tidied up a lot of the stuff that was there. So that was a slightly more sophisticated project. The one after that uh, was a large Victorian property in uh, Crouch End in London, and a developer, an Irish developer, had bought it off a elderly lady who'd been running it as bed and, uh, as bedsits. So there were thirteen bedsits in the property, and he wanted to take some of them out and turn them into flats that he would then rent. Uh, but the council had said that they he couldn't do that; that it had to remain actually as a single household. Uh, so he hit a problem there and uh, was then just very keen to offload the property. So we snapped it up off him 
and we then proceeded to turn from bedsits back into a house. But nowadays the trend, like you say, is going the other way, um, where people are turning houses into bedsits or HMOs, houses of multiple occupation is the uh, correct phrase. So um, tell us a little bit about the houses of multiple occupation yeah, that's. Uh, I mean, that's a good point. I think to be fair, most or a lot of the um, BRRR or renovation stuff you do is now people turning them into HMOs and then holding them. You know, previously before the, the changes in stamp duty, you know, you'd hear a lot of stuff about flipping. Someone would buy something, add value, and then sell it straight away. But because you've got these greater sunk costs now with increased stamp duty it's not quite as attractive really unless you've got a a massive margin to flip stuff anymore so you know it's not always that's not the case for everything you know if you're turning something into flats there's a lot more built-in value there so yes it's doable but for most people in a sort of the normal space of property investing personally it's it's difficult to flip and get enough profit to, to make it worthwhile so what a lot of people are doing is they're converting into hmos and then they're keeping them as an income play for the, for their portfolio. Why is that? Well, you know, what is a HMO? Say you take a normal, you know, if there's anyone listening that went to university, then you probably lived in a HMO, which is one of those, uh, you know, houses where the extra space has been turned into extra bedrooms and then they're rented out on an individual basis. Now, you know, that may not sound very appealing, sort of knowing what the student house was like. If it was anything like mine, it wouldn't be that appealing. But um you know, nowadays students aren't necessarily like that and there are sort of, um, you know, places you can buy and things you can put in, in place that sort of protect you. But um, anyway, I've gone off on a tangent there. So basically you're turning, you're, you're adding bedrooms and that in turn increases the yield, you know. So on a HMO in a student location, depending on where it is, you can get six, seven, eight, nine. And if you go into Scotland, 10% plus yield. So uh, you get the capital uplift from the work you do, but then you can also get a much higher yield. So, Yes, now the HMO uh, just had a quick uh, look at the overview on the government website. Now, a house in multiple occupation is a property rented out by at least three people who are not from one household, for example, a family, but share facilities like the bathroom and kitchen. It's sometimes called a house share. So, yes, as you say, most of those student accommodations would now be classified as HMOs. And the government did change the classification, I think, in 2018. So more houses uh, where, which used to be just rented out to a few people, would now qualify as HMOs and they need to be licensed by the local council. Here comes the the tricky bit is that each council has a different way of treating their licensing operation for HMOs. So you need to uh, firstly find out whether the property you're intending to do something with would become an HMO and then you need to have a look at the council website to find out how that particular council deals with HMOs. Uh, But the reason the yield is higher is because they are more complicated. Tell us a little bit about the complexities of HMOs. Yeah, sure. I mean, it's, um, you know, it's, it's, it is, you know, slightly more advanced strategy, I guess, which is why it's sort of last in our list. And, you know, I think generally looking at the sort of person before we just go into the disadvantage, you know, if you're looking at the sort of person that's looking at the BRR route or the HMO route, generally speaking, certainly within our client base and other investors that we speak to it, you know, you start off with some nice, easy, simple things like the the buy and hold or a buy off plan or a buy for income. And then you sort of build into the BRR renovation stuff. And, you know, 
certainly amongst our clients, you know, this would be sort of a, a third or a fourth purchase would be the HMO type approach. So uh, what are some of the pitfalls? I mean, the downfalls, you know, there's more wear and tear on the property because you've got, um, you know, five separate people in and out and they're changing every year. So, you know, so it does need a little bit more love. The the management of sort of all those separate, separate um, you know, the separate contracts or putting the contracts together can be a bit more difficult. But again, if you're working with a management agent that specializes in HMOs, then they, they know what they're doing. You may pay a couple of percent more on the management fee, but yeah, they're, they're just sort of a bit, a bit more work. I mean, if a lot of them recently will have bills included, you know, so you imagine if you're doing bills included over the past 12 months when you've had energy prices going the way they have been, that's been eaten into your profits massively. So just a couple more sort of factors that you need to consider when you're looking at this as opposed to like a buy and hold, you know, which is pretty simple. You buy something half decent, put a tenant in it, then you set and forget, you know, so it is a bit more hands-on. You can pay a management company to do the hands-on stuff for you, but it will cost you a bit more. So you have the higher yield, may cost you a bit more, but, um, you know, it is, it's still a good thing to do, you know, if, if you've got the means or the experience or a team that can help you do it. Okay. Uh, well, looking at the next more complex uh, idea, that would be buying a very large house and converting it into apartments, uh, which is obviously then a full drawing up of planning permissions and drawings and uh, fire regulations and so on. Uh, is that something that you've ever ventured into, Callum? Yeah, I mean, I did, I did it um, a while ago. It was when I was sort of... Um, I don't know, 10 years ago or so, I used to work with a guy um, who did this exact sort of thing, taking sort of four or five story houses and, you know, period properties and turning them into flats, you know, a couple of one beds, a couple of two beds and maybe a bigger three bed duplex or something. So it is, um, you know, it is doable, but, you know, for your layman, for sort of most people listening to this, you know, myself included, it's, it's very capital intensive. You know, generally speaking, you need to be buying the property for cash and then there'll be bigger properties, you know, so 500,000 quid plus, say, just as an example, off the top of my head, I'm sure there's cheaper ones. So you need more capital, or you buy it on a bridge, bridging finance, which is expensive. And then you, um, you know, you also need the cash to do the renovation, which again is very expensive because it's not just sort of touching up. It's not just adding a bedroom. It's, you know, it's structurally changing the whole thing and sort of putting in you know, the meeting council requirements and then putting in heating for all the new rooms or plumbing or whatever it may be. So, um, yes, you've got new electricity supplies, new gas supplies to all of those individual things, new meters. Uh, you'd have several bathrooms. Obviously, each flat comes with its own plumbing facilities. So they are quite comprehensive uh, overhauls of a property. Uh, but um, they used to be, like you say, that used to be a kind of profitable enterprise for some people. But now the costs of uh, buying and selling make it uh, harder. But also maybe with the holding strategy. So if it's if you're strictly on the buy, rent, refurbish, refinance. So you can then refinance that whole property as five individual buy-to-lets. So if you bought one property, uh, you would then be able to refinance for the five in individual uh, flats that you've created. And that might be a profitable route to take, but very, very complex. And you've got to have deep pockets. Yeah, that's it. And you could, I mean, that's the one of the the... the great things about the BRR approach or this approach in general is that you can, 
remortgage the property to the higher value once it's done, you know, and that's one of the reasons many people like it because you can sort of, depending on how much value you add, you can pull all the cash you put into the deal or a lot of it. I mean, generally speaking, say you put down your 25% deposit or whatever it is, then you've got sort of 30, 40, 50 grand of renovation costs. Usually when you refinance, you can recoup that, um, the refurbish, refurbishment costs. So your deposit will stay in, but then you can use that to go again. So yes, you can pull cash out, which means you can go again. And obviously if you keep sort of creeping up the size of the projects, you learn more and more cash and you can go bigger and bigger and bigger, which is what a lot of people do. But I mean, but then you're getting into higher, bigger and bigger risk. And if the, because you're actually, you're gambling on the property, uh, the the property market in a year's time or at the end of your project. So there are, you know, plenty of niche developers who've been caught out by a downturn. It's a full-time job as well. I mean, you uh, finding someone to manage a single uh, renovation is not too difficult. There's lots of good quality teams out there that'll do that for you. You know, Grant, for example, who were at our seminars in Dubai and Singapore recently or networking nights, but going all the way up to sort of full scale refurbs. I mean, I think sort of uh, unless you've got the connections to do it yourself, most developers, you know, I don't know why they would do it for you. You know, you'd, you'd have to do it yourself because if there's enough profit in it, they'd just be doing it themselves and not cutting you in on it. So, uh, yeah, it's it's a lot of risk and it's a lot of, lot of hard work and certainly a full time job. <laughs> Those are the principal ideas that you can do with property. But there is another version which is actually just doing the paperwork version of that kind of transformation. So you can spot a property and in particular, maybe if you're particularly good at conveyancing or the getting planning permission, those kind of things, you can buy a property because you see an opportunity in it. Um, it might be that you convert it from formerly commercial property to residential it might be that it has a large garden and that you think that you can get planning permission to build something in that garden or it might be that there is some legal complexity to it um, flying freeholds was one that was always uh, quite tricky where it uh, the, the above part is over a property in a below part so that's called the flying freehold there uh, there's some sort of access route but some of those things can be sorted out just by lots of detail on the on the leaseholds and so on and that might be a way of adding value just by adding the paperwork to a property and then selling it on or passing it on because you've got that particular legal mind and you're able to do that uh, is that something that you've ever seen happen yeah for sure i mean there's some developers we we work with you know and i think that's the thing you know to be successful or one of the things to be successful in property i was reading a book at the moment and it talks about you know, it's not just about having your strategy and a clear plan um, going forward. You need a clear exit strategy as well. You know, so I know it's a long way off for a lot of people, but how are you how are you going to get out of of the um, the deal? And all the sort of good developers and investors are people that have got multiple exit strategies. You know, if you're sort of tied to one, you've got to have this outcome from the market in order to make a deal. Then you know, blimey, it's a lot of risk to be putting into something. You know, if you've got sort of three, four different potential exit strategies or ways you can make money on a property or something or anything, you know, in life, a couple of different options to come out the other side. It's less risky, isn't it? So, um, yeah, there's, there's, there's lots of developers that will, you know, sort of look at a property or a plot of land and say, okay, well, what's the best way to, to make money on this? You know, um, again, some of the guys we had speaking at our seminars and 
networking sessions, you know, they're not strictly sort of buying and building, they're buying and converting, they're buying and holding, they're buying and getting planning permission put on a piece of land and then selling it on, you know, so there's, there's heaps and heaps of ways to, um, you know, to do that and make money with it. I think, again, if you're sort of getting into those sub strategies or more complex things, then you need to be working with people that have done it before and have a good track record. And then you can just lean on them rather than, um, trying to do it yourself because it is pretty um pretty technical pretty daunting yes and like you say multiple exit strategies is very good advice it's uh i was just thinking about the that old phrase don't put all your eggs in one basket well this is don't put all your nest eggs in one basket case property probably that's um, it that's exactly it yeah but if you need uh if you're interested in this brrr strategy then uh, get in touch with apw and i'm sure they'll be able to help uh, but that's it for today uh, thanks to callum Thanks for having me, Paul. Appreciate it. And that's it from me. My name's Paul Shearer. Have a lovely day. Thanks for listening to this episode of our podcast series produced for APW by Emma Holton at Brilliant Audio. If you enjoyed it, be sure to subscribe, hit like, share it with your friends. If you didn't, keep stum. You can find more episodes in all your usual podcast places.